the saints have been practicing plural marriage as a church since the 1840s. So this is almost a half a century. And just imagine if you tried to remove something that had been taught for half a century, there's going to be resistance. There's going to be a lot of differing opinions, and it's going to be a challenge. It will be difficult. Welcome to the Saints Podcast. I'm Ben Godfrey. And I'm Shailen Back. We're so grateful you're joining us today. Today, we're going to be talking about Chapter 40, The Right Thing from Saints Volume 2. And today, we're blessed again to have with us our managing historian of the Saints Project, Jed Woodworth. Welcome back, Jed. Thanks. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about the manifesto. It's got to be one of the most monumental kinds of documents that have ever been written for the church. Jed, can you set the background for us a little bit? And then let's talk about the reactions that various people had when the manifesto was announced. Yes, sure. So the saints had been practicing plural marriage as a church since the 1840s. So this is almost a half a century And just imagine if you tried to remove something that had been taught for half a century, there's going to be resistance. There's going to be a lot of differing opinions, and it's going to be a challenge. It will be difficult. And this is not just any command. The saints feel that the Lord has told his church that they must do this, that they must go forward and raise up seed unto him by practicing plural marriage. So this command that the Lord gives runs in opposition to federal law, and by federal I mean United States law. Beginning in 1862, there were a number of laws passed that forbade polygamy, and these were couched under different terms. Sometimes it was bigamy, sometimes it was unlawful cohabitation. And the laws intensified in the 1880s. There was a law in 1882 called the Edmonds Act that made unlawful cohabitation a federal crime and punishable by six months in jail and a steep fine. And then in 1887, the Edmonds Act was uh, amended to be the Edmonds-Tucker Act, and that law disincorporated the church took all the church's assets in excess of $50,000, disincorporated Perpetual Immigrating Fund and made it illegal for polygamists to vote. And the saints then in response to these acts dug in their heels and they went underground and and I'm sure other podcasts have talked about. Right, we've covered some of that in these episodes. But really the straw that broke the camel's back was In 1890, a new federal receiver was given office, and his name was Henry Lawrence. He was once a Latter-day Saint, had gone apostate, and did not have great feelings for the church. And he set about to gain compliance for trying to get the saints to buckle. And so one of the threats that he put forward was, we are going to seize your temples. Your temples are not strictly for religious purposes, And under the Edmonds-Tucker Act, the church's meeting houses were preserved as protected under the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. But Lawrence argued that there was more going on in temples than simply religious worship. And so at that point, President Woodruff knew that if it came down to losing temples or giving up plural marriage, he was willing to give up plural marriage and believe that he had the Lord's backing in doing this. So in the opening scenes of this chapter, we have several of the apostles on a train. 
it's a little bit of a comical scene. There's some kind of a pile up earlier and they get out and they're walking up to see what's going on. And they get in the train car and they've got newspapers coming from Salt Lake City. And all the talk on the train is about the announcement of the manifesto. And several of these individuals are apostles and they haven't heard about it yet. And they are surprised. Can you kind of tell us about some of the reactions that they and others had about the announcement that the church would cease practicing plural marriage? Sure. So one of the interesting things about this that I'd been asked before is, how could President Woodruff issue the manifesto if he had not convened all of the apostles together and gotten their approval? And I may be a simpleton on this, but I tell people, well, he's the Lord's prophet. And all of the apostles around him know and believe in their hearts that he has the right to speak. And this is one of those cases where even George Q. Cannon, we have him on record saying, this was President Woodruff's initiative. He knew he needed to speak. And there were a number of precursors that came right before this where it became clear to him that it was time to speak on this matter. But it is slightly different from the way we think of Revelation happening today. But nonetheless, it does show that there's almost two tiers. There's the president of the church, who is the Lord's mouthpiece, and then there are supporting apostles around him. And he doesn't need to convene the other 14 to be able to speak. Now, in this case, he did get the buy-in of apostles who were in Salt Lake at the time that he issued the manifesto, namely George Q. Cannon, Franklin D. Richards, Lorenzo Snow, several others. But as you say, Francis Marion Lyman, John W. Taylor, Beach Roberts, who's a member of the 70, they are traveling and not privy to the discussions in Salt Lake. It's hard for us to remember, but there's not like telephones, you know, send a quick text. There's no email. And President Woodruff must have thought, I must act now. I don't have the luxury of waiting. Right. And in general, the split that you see in the reaction among the leadership It falls along the lines of the older apostles support President Woodruff and the younger ones are more reticent. They all end up raising their hand in support of it eventually, with the exception of B.H. Roberts. He's not able to hold his hand up, but he's not an apostle. So, And just to to clarify on B.H. Roberts, so... When you say he didn't hold his hand up, we're talking about the meeting where the manifesto was read in conference and people were asked to sustain it. Right. He didn't become disaffected with the church. No, he was a dyed-in-the-wool believer and was probably, some have said at the time that he was living, he's the most articulate defender of the church. He could stand for two hours and give an extemporaneous sermon on the principles of the church, was an extremely eloquent man. But at the time, he was not sure that this was what the Lord had in mind for the church. But again, almost all of the apostles could see the hand of God in it. John Henry Smith, who was one of the younger apostles, he said he was unsure, but then he came around and said, yes, I believe that the Lord inspired President Woodruff to issue the manifesto. So John W. Taylor was another younger apostle who was unsure of the manifesto. He eventually did come around by voting for it. But at the time, he was less than certain.
This is a very difficult topic. Plural marriage, there were difficulties when it was starting, and now there's difficulties when it's ending. And I'm trying to put myself in the position of the saints that were in this general conference when they were hearing the manifesto. And the book just points out, too, that for two generations, despite significant challenges, the good things that plural marriage brought about were marriage was made available to people who wanted it. They were able to raise large families of faithful children that became devoted parents, church members, leaders, and missionaries. We've talked about how many of the church membership today are descendants of plural marriages. And I thought this was interesting, too, that it also unified cultures, these marriages between different cultures. It just really united the church's diverse population. And so they're seeing all of these good things. And so when it's read, they just didn't know especially what the repercussions were. So these people that were involved in plural marriages, what was the direction or what were they supposed to do? Well, let me add another one to your list. Your list is great. I would just add this. One of the things that we see in the 19th century, and we see it in the church today, is that women come into the church in greater numbers than men, and women tend to be more active in church. And so in 19th century Utah territorial life, there was a superabundance of women in comparison to men. And one of the things that plural marriage allowed women to do was to have access to marriage at a time when they might not otherwise have access to marriage. And so here we have a command that says to enter God's presence, you must be coupled to fully enter God's presence. It's a man and a woman who are married together, sealed together. And so plural marriage allowed women to carry out this command. And we sometimes forget that. Now we know it's withdrawn today and there's no hint of this practice coming back. But at the time when the saints had defended the practice for 50 years, in public print, and they had suffered so much for it. They had resisted the laws, which they deemed to be unjust. They had gone into prison. They'd paid fines. They had gone underground under assumed names. All of this was really part of the collective zeitgeist at the time where they said, well, so why did we have to undergo that? Why did God ask us to endure that? And over time, they were able to see that as something that would help test them and that made them stronger. But in the moment, when you hear this manifesto, you're wondering, why now? And And what happens to me? You know, I'm in this plural marriage. What happens to me and my children? Right. And, And let me also add here that we don't ever want to be in a position where we're locking God in to having said one thing, and then he can't ever speak another thing. God speaks in our language and according to our needs. He speaks here a little, there a little, and he will adapt the message according to our circumstances. And that's part of his great love for us, that he's willing to speak to us in our particular condition. And I look at the manifesto as being one of those times where God is telling the church, it's now time for a different course. And anytime God says that, it's going to be a challenge, especially when it's something that is deeply emotional as marriage. I'm glad you mentioned that, Jed, because George Q. Cannon, who's in this chapter, is invited to speak at the conference and explain the reasons why this change could happen. And he quotes Doctrine and Covenant section 124, verse 49, as to why the Lord may choose to implement a practice at one time and then change it. 
let me just read a little piece of that. And this is again, Doctrine and Covenants 124 verse 49. Verily, verily, I say unto you that when I give a commandment to any of the sons of men to do a work unto my name, and those sons of men go with all their might and with all they have to perform that work, and cease not their diligence, and their enemies come upon them and hinder them from performing that work, behold, it behooveth me to require that work no more at the hands of those sons of men, but to accept their offering. Now, this revelation was not given at the time of the manifesto. This is a revelation for Joseph Smith in the time of the saints in Missouri. Is that right? Well, it was given in Nauvoo, but it is accounting for why the Lord no longer requires the saints to go back to Jackson County or far west and right. build temples. And so this has to be a very comforting thing. You know, it's almost like another scripture, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You know, this is the Lord saying to them, I've accepted your offering. And who couldn't look at this situation and say they really did do everything in their diligence and their enemies have hindered them and the work is going to be stopped in the temples, as you pointed out today. It seems like such a wonderful message that President Cannon is able to try to help them understand why. Right. And, you know, as you talk, Ben, I think about what led up to the manifesto. There were events where President Woodruff knew we need to dial it back. We need to pull back on this practice. And so the previous year, 1889, he had stopped permitting plural marriages from taking place in Utah. He had asked temple presidents to stop performing plural marriages. And so we see the numbers going way down. And, and actually, they had been going down since the 1870s. And so there was a gradual withdrawal. And it's more easily seen now than at the time. But all of that, I think, helped the prophet know this is what the Lord wants me to do. And he was absolutely clear. I have confidence that he was acting for the Lord and that this was not simply a political expedient move. This was something that he knew God wanted him to do. And I think in retrospect, we can see how the growth of the church and especially the international church really demanded us to pull away from this practice. Let's listen to a little quote here from the book, which is President Woodruff's own words about this change. The Lord will never permit me or any other man who stands as president of this church to lead you astray, he continued, reassuring any saints who questioned the divine origin of the manifesto. It is not in the program. It is not in the mind of God. If I were to attempt that, the Lord would remove me out of my place. It seems clear, as you've said, President Woodruff is confident this is the Lord's will. And now the test will be, how do we move forward? And I'm reminded of a wonderful sister that we're going to learn about in Saints. We've seen her in previous chapters, but this is Lorena Larson's story. What I love about Lorena Larson's story is, so she is a second wife to Bent Larson, and she just was having a really hard time when the manifesto was first read, and she turned to her husband for comfort. So instead of saying anything, he just left the tent. And so she said, oh, yes, she thought it's easy for you. You can go home to your other family and be happy with her while I must be like Hagar sent away. And darkness, she said, just flooded her mind. And she really questioned President Woodruff and 
she said, if the Lord and the church authorities can go back on that principle, then there's nothing to the gospel. And it's just interesting that she then heard a voice that said, this is no more unreasonable than the requirement the Lord made of Abraham when he commanded him to offer up his son Isaac. When the Lord sees that you are willing to obey in all things, the trial shall be removed. And I know I'm telling this whole story, but I think it's so important that she got her own personal confirmation. And then her husband came back in and she told him about the presence that she had felt that removed her anguish. And he said, I knew I could not say a word to comfort you, which is why he left. And so he said, I went to a patch of willows and asked the Lord to send a comforter. And so to me, that just really personalizes the manifesto to this couple who's in a plural marriage and was seeking confirmation and seeking comfort and knowing what to do and just the support that they have for each other. And I know that wasn't the case across the board. So can you tell us about what were the consequences? What were other people in plural marriages, what were they doing? Sure. So let me back up and just comment on how the Lord speaks. Generally, the Lord gives a command, but he does not tell people how to execute it. And we see this in the Doctrine and Covenants. We see him asking the saints to build a temple or a school, but he doesn't give all of the details. And it was true of plural marriage. It was true of the end of plural marriage. And so the manifesto gave the general idea or the command that the church now is free from practicing this. But what does that look like on the ground? The manifesto did not say that. And part of that was intentional because if President Woodruff says too much, then the federal government can start parsing words and saying, well, I don't agree with this part. And so the manifesto did not differentiate between new plural marriages and existing plural marriages. And this is what someone like Lorena Larson is concerned with. She is in an existing plural marriage. And the question is, what does this mean for me? And everyone in the audience in the tabernacle or learning about the manifesto, say on the train with the authorities, they're asking this question, what does it mean for me personally? And for her, she is concerned that she will be abandoned. She is worried that the manifesto means my eternal ceiling is over. But the manifesto, once again, does not say that. And as it turns out, the authorities are mortified that any couple would suppose that what the manifesto means is that they should terminate their ceiling. President Woodruff never intended that, did not want that. And in fact, in one case said, any man who divorces his wife on this ground should be disciplined by the church. But this is not publicly declared. And I think it's not publicly declared because people like Ben and Lorena, they have made sacred covenants with each other. And the authorities don't feel like these covenants should end. The covenants of God are of utmost importance. So the idea is that you're going to stop new plural marriages, but existing plural marriages should continue. And so people like Lorena, they have to get their comfort from God directly. They're not going to hear it from the stand or the pulpit that their plural marriage is going to be dignified in the eyes of God. What happens in the eyes of the government? I know where this was, we're kind of flashing forward a little bit, but what happens to these marriages over time? Do they ever get some sort of legal status that allows them to live out their lives or what happens? Well, because this was in the 1890s to get a little perspective. So these marriages would have continued, I mean, for the next several decades. Right. So I could speak at length about this, but I'll try and summarize. What the manifesto does is it signals to the government 
we are earnest about this practice coming to an end. And that begins the process. But we know that some new plural marriages were consummated in the late 1890s, early 1900s. Some of them were performed by apostles, by high church leaders. And really not until 1904, when President Joseph F. Smith clarified the manifesto and what is called the Second Manifesto, does the church say, all right, now no new plural marriages. So the language is even more specific here. And President Smith says that anyone who performs one of these or is involved in one of these is subject to discipline. And so there's a gradual decline, but really an accelerated decline after 1904. Then, as Shailen said, there are more people who are still living in plural marriage into the 1940s and in some cases the 1950s. And the last church authority to have um, a more than one wife dies in 1931. So the practice does take a number of years to die off. Thank you so much, Jed, for joining us today. And thank you for listening to the Saints podcast. You can always reach out to us, uh, send us a comment at our email address, which is saints at churchofjesuschrist.org. We invite you to drop us a rating or a review in whatever platform you're listening to the podcast on. And you can also visit saints.churchofjesuschrist.org to find all of the topics, videos, and the chapters which we've discussed today. I'm Ben Godfrey. And I'm Shailen Back. Thank you for listening.